This episode of Positive Space is brought to you by Chartpack, parent company of 14 art supply brands including Grumbacher, Molotow Markers, Higgins, and Cullinore Drawing Supplies. Pens, pencils, paints, and paper? Chartpack has it. Check out Chartpack and their brands at chartpack.net. Welcome to Positive Space, Conversations and Art Foundations, a production of Foundations in Art, Theory and Education, also known as FATE. Positive Space is a podcast providing opportunities for those passionate about art foundations to discuss and promote excellence in the development and teaching of college-level foundations in art studio and art history classes. Positive space with us. And today, joining us via Skype, we have Gary Setzer, Associate Professor, Vision Chair of the First Year Experience at the University of Arizona. Welcome, Gary. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Well, I thought we could kind of begin just sort of with a general introduction to you as an artist, and you can maybe tell us a little bit about your artistic practice. Sure. I started very early on in the training as a painter. My first degree was actually in painting. When I got into graduate school at Ohio University, I was I took this fateful I'm gonna to try to work the word fate into this as many times as I can casually. <laughs> nice, just, nice. Just kidding. But I took this fateful bike ride and it was a beautiful evening and I was staring at the moon and you know, there were speed bumps that I wasn't prepared for and I hit a speed bump and came down and broke my wrist. And, you know, tried and tried to paint with my broken wrist and uh, was not able to. And, you know, my, of course, your professors, good professors would say, try freeing it up and painting with your left hand. And I did that for a while. And that also uh, was a complete bust. I think I'm a little bit of a control freak in the studio. So that kind of loosey goosey approach did not work for me, although I've seen it work very well for other people. And painting is still my favorite art form, but uh, that kind of instigated this shift and I did my first performance and then my first installation and it was just kind of snowballed from there and I realized I was a bad painter. Uh, I wanted to be a good (laughs) painter and painting is, it's really, it's what I adore, like starting with the 19th century and on, that's where my real interest in art history begins, you know, up through the current day. Yeah, so anyway, uh, I do perform Nowadays, I do performance uh, video and sound, and I kind of fold things together that sometimes the art world, it's, it's kind of like, you know, you have people that like music and you have people that like fine art, uh, like you have people that like chocolate and people that like peanut butter, but not everybody likes their chocolate and peanut butter together. So I think some of the choices that I make are uh, considered to be periphery uh, or, or on the outskirts of uh, what should be considered fine art, but I definitely fold pop culture and, you know, maybe popular culture forms into my fine art recipes. So there is electronic music that is uh, kind of brought into the fold there. So people tend to really either like that blend or not like it. And I'm okay with that. I'm comfortable with that. For me, whether it's uh, a format that's more kind of akin to popular culture or whether it's a format that kind of is steeped in the American avant-garde, like uh, it all comes from the same place it always has for me so I do like what I've really been doing uh, recently my my most recent works are performance works that 
have projected video, and then I perform musically live in front of that video. So it's kind of like video art with an attendant of sorts. People have compared it to spoken word. I, so the things that I'm saying in front of the projected video is, uh, in some ways, I'm kind of a tour guide for the audience uh, describing what's happening. And the work kind of centers on a mind-body split, but also using the surface of the landscape as a uh, kind of surrogate for uh, the division between language and meaning. That's a curious way that you sort of came into that practice. I assume that your wrist is fine now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it should, should be, should be healed. Yeah. It's interesting that, that that sort of got you into that mode of working. I mean, it sounds like you went back to painting and then just realized that this, this was a better mode of communication for you in terms of art making. Yeah, I think it. the work that I make now, I feel like, is unabashedly me and unapologetically me. You know, I don't know that I would have discovered that had it not been for the accident. I had had a lot of baggage from art school, but it was delicious baggage, and I enjoyed it. And, and I think art school, more than anything else, teaches you discipline and work ethic. Uh, and so none of what I do now would have been possible without that. But I also feel like you have to get out of the academy to kind of shake your professor's voices out of your head in order to be able to actually hear yourself. And they're still in my head. I, I say that as if I've abandoned everything, and that's not true at all. Like, I can still hear specific professors when I'm working on something, like telling me to get my head out of my ass. Or No, I feel kind of, I can't say comfortable where I'm at, because I think if, if you're comfortable, you're probably treading water. I feel familiar with what I'm doing, but there's always that kind of feeling in your gut, like this could go horribly wrong or, you know, this could be totally unusable. And I think that's why I keep coming back to art is, you know, to be able to have that mystery in front of you. You know, I, uh, I don't know. I'm not sure if I answered your question. I don't remember where I took that. But. No, I think you took it in really, really great, great places. It's so curious that this sort of shift and how it made you sort of unpack things and lose a little bit of control in terms of things that you had kind of set up in terms of how you make art or how you communicate with an audience. Well, so were you, as a kid, did you make art? Were you... I mean, you, you mentioned that you play music during your performances. So were you in some kind of a band? Like, were, were those creative outlets something that you explored when you were growing up? Yeah, yes, definitely. And and they weren't things that I necessarily considered to... Yet, You know, uh, when you get into art school, you're exposed to this kind of hierarchical thinking. And it really kind of makes different strata that you maybe unconsciously sort of just take on. And so I had, since I was probably 14 or 15, you know, I, I, well, I remember even before that, a buddy of mine and I, when we were in fifth grade, would stand on top of his doghouse and uh, do concerts for nobody, right? <laughs> uh, it was, and just like pretend we were, well, we wouldn't pretend we were really singing, but I felt bad for the neighbors, like looking back now, but... <laughs> Uh, so, so there was always this kind of musical angle and we would also make these terrible science fiction movies. We would get a hold of someone's parents, uh, camcorder and do these things. And all of these things were, uh, engaging to me. And, uh, while I grappled with meaning in a very different way, like it wasn't necessarily about meaning for me at that age, 
it did become a means uh, to know the world and to just kind of do like it was it was a way to occupy the town. I grew up in a tiny village. It wasn't even a city uh, on the Ohio River. And there, you know, if you didn't play football, you basically didn't really have a lot to contribute. Right. And uh, so it was uh, and I was not clearly if uh, if you've ever seen me, I'm not an athlete. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I'm proud of that too. Like it was, it was a difficult thing to find a creative outlet in a town that was really centered on high school sports. So music uh, was definitely part of it. And when I got after, well, after college, when I started teaching, I had uh, started a band with some uh, people and some students of mine actually in Bowling Green State University. We would play the shows and you would have, you know, 200, 300 people there watching and engaged and sweaty. And then you would go to a gallery, you know, the next week and do this kind of conceptual performance artwork. And there would be maybe four people watching. Right. Right. And so I started to think about the contrast there. Like, why is it uh, for me? They were both coming from an identical place at that point. Like the lyrics that I would write were always heavily involved in you know, linguistic theory. And I would pull from the same sources that I pulled from when I would make these conceptual artworks. And I could not for the life of me understand why one was so engaging to an audience and the other was maybe less cool. And I, I, when I look at the history of avant-garde performance art, and I think about conceptual art to me, that is uh, undeniably cool. And I wanted to maybe capitalize on the best parts of each and bring them together in a manner that would allow people to be patient with the duration aspects of performance, because I think that's where we lose people, right? There's the long running joke, you know, how many performance artists does it take to screw in a light bulb? And the answer to that is, I don't know, because I left before it was finished. Um, (laughs) You know, that I think uh, duration is the gift of performance art, but it's also seen as the challenge, you know, for uh, a generation where, we can pull up just about anything on YouTube and uh, watch all the kitten videos we we care to, and we can skip around through that timeline uh, to ask someone to sit and watch someone go through this process and to be patient through it is uh, it's I wouldn't say it's unheard of, but fails to make connections, which is sad to me. So I tried to think of a format that would allow me to fold time-based mode that people were familiar with and excited with, which is music to fold that into the durational aspects of performance so the two parallel tracks could uh, communicate the meaning that can only be communicated through duration. But on the other hand, the people aren't going to be fidgety or impatient. They're going to be engaged like they would if they were listening to you know, music. I don't know if it worked, but I tried it. Right. I think that that's a tricky thing to sort of navigate because there is such a hurry up culture and everyone's running through a museum or an art space and they're just wanting this immediate vibe. And I think that amount of time for some can be challenging, but also that's where all the juicy, wonderful things are, you know, that that are great about time-based work in general. It seems like you're really comfortable in your own skin in terms of who you are as an artist and who you are as a maker. Was that something that that took a long time for you to kind of say, well, this is what I do and this is what I'm about and I'm not going to try to do this or that or subscribe to this power structure of this is art and this is a painting and this is more important. Was that hard for you to realize or was that a process? Well, I think, you know, I I do. I I use the word baggage. 
a little earlier. And I think when we're in the academy, there is a lot of baggage that we're handed. They really have to kind of uh, sort through that and feather it out and figure out which baggage applies to us and which doesn't. And uh, it's certainly, you know, in an academy, you know, there's a lot of baggage that comes with an academy. And, uh, you know, so, so um, no, it, well, I, don't, I can't say it was easy. I think it was kind of a man under path and a lot of errors and mistakes. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I think it's a really difficult thing. It, making art takes courage and, and uh, it takes confidence. And I think confidence only comes from repetition and practice. While I still can honestly say that uh, every time I'm making a new work, right, like that confidence isn't there at first. But I do think it's the unknown that kind of keeps us coming back for that as artists. And you hope, you know, you throw, uh, you know, there's the old saying, you throw enough shit at the wall and some of it will eventually stick. And I do throw a lot of shit, literally. No, not really. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, tr I try a lot of things and I, I think whether whether or not my time spent on something ends up in uh, utter failure, I, I don't think it's uh, a big deal. I think that the failure is part of what leads us to those successes. So in terms of comfort in my skin, I actually really, maybe maybe it's more comfort with anxiety, uh, you know, because I, <laughs> and that's part of the reason I like teaching and part of the reason I like getting in front of people when performing is I get a rush from that anxiety. And I, and I can't say that it's like a, a calm space for me, but what it is in a strange way is a very focused space. Uh, and I, I'm easily distracted. You could probably ask me one question at the beginning of this and I'd probably talk for four hours. Like if, you, <laughs> if you let me, uh, but when I'm performing, like there's this, uh, very specific target and I, it kind of ropes me in, in a fabulous way and gives me maybe one of the few moments of focus in my life. There's something that happens where you're kind of in and out of the body at the same time. Like you can be standing in front of people and going through this kind of rehearsed muscle memory set of uh, activities and your brain can be disengaged in somewhere else altogether on a different plane. And I, I really like that about performance, you know, the kind of uh, nerves going in that the possibility that anything can go wrong at any time, uh, you know, you could fall on your face. Uh, and the audience, uh, I think, also buys into that. And that's why the live, uh, to me, is so critical that you're standing in front of a body and it's not a recording of the body. It, it's just right there, right then, and you don't know uh, what's going to happen. So that's, that's kind of exciting uh, in, in one regard for me in terms of art. Uh, but in another regard, it is uh, the perspectival space and the way that we approach the world ontologically on a daily basis, right? We're always interacting with real people in real time. You know, anything could go wrong in the real world or anything could go right in the real world. Uh, but I think sometimes people have difficulty accepting that to be art because it is so every day, even though a lot of times like the artist has a very different kind of edgy angle or, or uh, you know, what have you. Um, I, but I think the mode of time-based work is something that is uh, built in uh, to us, right? We, if you, you know, people, the on average, people spend between, I think it's like five and seven hours a day watching television, which is crazy to me. Uh, but we have all this exposure to time-based media, whether it be through uh, our computers or our televisions or even uh, ads, you know, projected into our cities and 
So it, it is a mode that's very familiar to us, but it's also, I think when people think about art, there's still this kind of hierarchical uh, gut instinct that the painting and the sculpture and drawing and photography are what's critical. And so I don't know. I'm, I'm not really sure. I don't even remember what your question was. My apologies. <laughs> no, you're, you're, you're completely fine. You're, you're totally okay. good. You're totally good. I'm curious, as someone, you know, I myself am not a performance artist, um, nor do I work in time-based process. And so I'm always really interested in, in what someone's creative process is like when they're working within those realms, um, because it's so unfamiliar to me as a maker. And so, you know, when you're in your studio, do you write scores? Do you perform in your studio? Are there like exercises or do you make lists? Do you sketch? What does that physically look like for you? Sure. The, you know, the, I think still I talked about my kind of training as a painter and that, uh, that kind of means of knowing the world is still a critical component and almost always where I start. Uh, so I still draw a lot. I have a wall, like I'm in my studio now and I can see my wall of drawings and storyboards. And, uh, I often start thinking about the body in space and, you know, and so, some of those drawings I'll kind of push further and then I'll take those drawings into the landscape with me with a camera and I'll, uh, shoot some footage and try to fold those gestures into uh, footage that I can use later. So sometimes I start there. Other times, like I do start with the kind of musical component. And, uh, you know, I will be, uh, as a separate and very segregated activity, I'll be composing, uh, you know, a piece of electronic music. And uh, sometimes that is kind of the first thing. And then I think about, oh, what kind of gesture or action would uh, go well with this kind of, uh, rhythm or pace, you know, so it really, for me, it's, uh, it can start any number of places. Sometimes it's a kind of passage of lyrics or a specific word. A lot of times I'll have a little list of words that I find really enticing on the wall. And sometimes the whole world will kind of come out of that if I water it enough. So it really can start any number of places, but the end result, at least of the recent work that I had been performing around, uh, really kind of involves the I think the lyric key component, I think the electronic music is, is a key component, and then this recorded performative activity that's projected into the space. And uh, while I'd say probably 50% of the time it starts with drawing, uh, maybe the other 50% it starts with kind of musical composition or the lyrical writing, and I'm okay with any of those things. And a lot of times you'll start with one and then like I'll, I'll have a video that I bring into the studio and then I try to score it. And I, you know, the score ends up feeling forced. So I have to go back and reshoot the video to match the timing of the, the score the way it was intended to be. It's a lot of push and pull and back and forth. And I kind of like it. It's like sculpture in a way, like reductive or rather subtractive sculpture, not reductive. Although the work is reductive too, you know, in its own regard. But it's really like making a, a carving uh, where you start out with a lot of stuff. You start... Well, maybe it's an additive and a subtractive sculpture because I kind of pile stuff on and then I reduce and uh, see what's left. And I, I think that's uh, that's key for my process is the the what's left question, right? How much can you take away to say what you need to say efficiently? And when I say efficiency, I'm talking about maybe efficiency of communication because I don't think art is an efficient process by any means whatsoever. I think it is... Uh, chaotic process. I think it is a uh, very time intensive and not a commercially viable practice. 
And I, well, <laughs> I mean, there are ways to make it commercially viable, but, and I'm, I'm fortunate in that, that I can undertake the types of art that aren't commercially viable. Like I teach at a university, uh, and I think that support mechanism is so critical to keeping the arts alive that, that we have these kind of uh, higher education institutions peppering our globe that, uh, you know, enable people to make a decent living and make experimental work that a gallery would never sell, you know, so that we can be kind of in the margins and on the edge and hope for the best, right? Like, and, and uh, kind of go through those things without thinking about would this sell in a gallery? And while I understand that there are academics that do partake in the gallery system and uh, are very fortunate to have gallery representation, I also think that that, you know, you can... I don't know. I think, uh, you know, and this is not a, a judgment in one way or the other. It's just kind of a note, uh, maybe a notation of the difference that there are different routes out there that we can go. And I think for me, it is a great fit because I, uh, I can pay my rent and I can also do work that, uh, you know, doesn't really have a saleable object at the other end of it. And you can't really, you can't beat that. I love, I love teaching too. <laughs> So yeah, sure, sure. And it sounds like the way that you described your practice focusing more on painting, you talked about being sort of a control freak in the studio, but but it sounds like the way that you were describing this back and forth and this analogy to carving, and it sounds really playful and really exciting. Is that something that you feel like is happening when you're working on stuff? Yeah, I uh, I do think it's exciting. You know, I think, I think if... Uh, you know, it's exciting, but it's also kind of a long arc. And I like taking on these long projects that, uh, you know, may take uh, three or four years of development, and then I'll take it out and I'll try to perform it as much as possible. And then I'll go back into the studio for a couple of years. The long arc for me is really, really important for some reason. Like, I'm not the kind of guy that, you know, if someone called me next week and said, hey, we've got a space in this gallery in a couple of weeks, like someone dropped out, would you want to do something? I really like, uh, I like to think about artwork, like, you know, uh, that the flavor richens with time, uh, you know, that I like things to be very considered and collected and rehearsed. I am not the, uh, kind of performance artist that would have been around in the sixties and seventies when the happenings were taking place. Uh, to me, that autonomous uh, approach is critical in the role, uh, you know, in its role that it served in our history. Uh, but for me, it's it's never about making it up as I go along, which is not to say that that's what the happenings were. There was there was a plan, but there were a lot of different ways that those could have gone. And it's kind of like I like to talk about. Uh, I always use the analogy that it's, uh, you know, when you live in a dormitory, right, and the guy, guy lives next to you uh, can't play guitar, but he's learning how to play guitar, right? And he's just kind of improvising every day. And you hear that uh, all the time. You know, I, I would rather hear what's at the other end of that than listen to someone practice all the time. I want it to be a known sort of catered experience because I feel like as artists, we, uh, we have to kind of balance the liberty that we have with responsibility. So I don't want to watch someone rehearse or practice or, or see what could happen because we all know that a lot of things could happen and most of them aren't going to be interesting. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And I think performance art is still gaining its sea legs. It's a young medium and, uh, we, we want to represent it with the best foot forward that we possibly can. And that doesn't mean that I'm not interested in other artists that 
use those, you know, tactics. Uh, I, I think I am, but I think I know I am. And I think that control freak aspect, like you were describing it being, being a playful process, and I would agree uh, with you on that. But I think at the end of the day, like the work that I put forward, I think a lot of the play is, uh, I hope some of it still remains like visible in the work, but I also think it's also a very controlled, maybe even a micromanaged experience. I think I micromanage myself. <laughs> If, if, if that's your jam, then that's great. I mean, and if that's what works for you, I mean, I, I think that's that's a, a fun fun way of working. And I think things can be really serious and really controlled, but also still be really playful and really ordered and not as random or as not considered. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and I, I see someone like Sol Lewitt, right? His serial, almost serial decision-making and, and the uh, very kind of calm and collected approach that he has. And I see that as playful in its own right. But then, you know, there, there are folks that are totally, you know, on the opposite side of that, where you might do kind of an ink wash drawing in a few moments. And I can find great joy and beauty in that too. It speaks to me in a very different way, but so I, I, yeah, I don't know where, where I was headed with that, but no, no, I, I, nor, nor do I, to be completely honest, but, um, <laughs> but I, but I mean, I, I think all, all of this is like so fascinating. Cause I, I think there is sort of this hierarchy, at least in, in my mind, in terms of, in terms of how I've been taught that if, if something's really quick or happens quickly or is perceived in some kind of casual way, then it, it must not be as valuable as something that takes a long time. And and as someone who, I mean, I would admit that I'm a planner. I like to make lists and I, I feel like I'm fairly organized. And so when I go into the studio, I, I am that way as well. But then I, I also feel like I give myself permission to sort of play and, and mess up and quote unquote waste time. And I think that's sort of a nice place in my life where I feel like I'm safe to do that. No, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I think it, it falls in line with why I was describing enjoying kind of longer arc projects, because you give yourself permission to fail, you give yourself room to fail. And so uh, the things that maybe do kind of result in uh, like a feeling of freshness or playfulness or, you know, the maybe the reductive quality that I was talking about, even like that kind of freshness that art can have. I do think it's trial and error to get there, right? I think there's so much stuff that is awful, right, that has right. to happen before we can curate ourselves. And um, no, I'm totally on board. I, I, yeah, I get that. Giving yourself time to really unpack an idea slowly and really think about it and sort of have that tension of where's this going to go and is this still exciting or interesting to me and what am I going to do? I mean, I think all of that is, is so nice to have to have time to do that. Sure. Well, and, and so thinking about your educational position and, and sort of where you are at the University of Arizona, can you maybe outline what your role is there? And, and um, I know you guys have like the first year experience um, structure. Is that something that was there when you got there or is that something that, that you sort of created? Sure. Uh, you know, and I think one of the things, uh, and I don't know if you feel this way too, but, you know, one of the things about foundations uh, specifically that really appeals to me is that it is this space between a lot of other things, right? Kind of addresses a lot of different things without the hierarchy, right? That And I, when I did, I, I was hired in uh, 2007 here, uh, and part of my hire was uh, this assumption that I would come in and rework their foundations program and 
build it into uh, something new. They had kind of the classic uh, Bauhaus trifecta, you know, the 3D foundations, 2D foundations, and drawing from observation. That was the, you know, and that's still the foundations program in a lot of different schools around the U.S., and it works. But they had already researched uh, workshop models a little bit, and I had just come from Bowling Green State University where uh, Mike Arrigo and Michelle Illuminato were kind of reshaping their foundations program over a number of years. And part of uh, what they had folded me into uh, at Bowling Green State University was the design of that. So they kind of had all the, and they're a, it's a very, it was a very good place to be. I was, uh, I learned so much uh, while I was there. They kind of always kept us folded into the conversations. I was a visiting uh, assistant. No, not even assistant. What was it called? Visiting three-year instructor or something. It was the longest title I've ever had. I don't remember what it was. <laughs> but uh, And length doesn't necessarily mean status. But uh, so I, you know, they had given me the opportunity to put forward a structural proposal for uh, the program and it wasn't used and, uh, but, uh, and I agree that it wasn't the right fit for that program. Just a couple of years later, I was in at university of Arizona and given this opportunity to design a program. And I started with the kind of blueprints and drafts that I had, uh, developed when I was at Bowling Green, uh, at least what I had hoped to do. It wasn't the right fit for their program. So I had this structure, kind of a skeleton in place, not necessarily the content yet, uh, and I knew they were interested in a workshop too, and that's what this was. And it was kind of structured after these little eight-week modules that the students would uh, work through, where uh, one eight-week module was like half of a semester. So the students would kind of migrate through uh, a number of different professors after their first year was over. And uh, in our program now, we have eight different classes. They're eight-week classes. It's set up like a salad bar. I like to describe it like a salad bar. Uh, <laughs> right. Because it's really difficult, unless you just get the chocolate pudding, right? Uh, it's it's <laughs> really difficult to go through a salad bar and not come out with a set of core principles or, or uh, maybe uh, an understanding of discipline or work ethic like I was talking about earlier. Uh, and so uh, to think about, you know, that there are photographers out there that their work may not be, they may never never be a good drawer. And I think that's okay. And there are sculptors out there that may never want to take a photograph. And I think that's okay. But we do owe it to them to give them some exposure uh, to many different modes of approaching the world and knowing the world and thinking about the world uh, because we uh, we want them to make informed decisions. We want them to say, you know, I'm a sculptor and I know that because I've tried these other things. Uh, I don't, the, the nightmare for me, the nightmare scenario is that a senior takes their first sculpture class and they're a photography major the whole time. And then they realize as a senior with that class, this is who I am. <laughs> this is what I was supposed to be doing. And of course you can always reinvent yourself. I think that's one of the, the beauties of being an artist is that uh, at any point in your career, you can take a big sharp left turn and uh, you're going to be okay. Right. And you may uh, lose some fans, but that's okay too. But so we've got these eight courses. There's mapping, space, gaze, experience, surface, amalgam, propaganda, and the body. And they're thematic modules, and they kind of center around, uh, you know, different uh, ways to approach things materially. But in, in the classes, we're also always pairing craft and content as kind of a 50-50 uh, equation. And so, you know, it's a... Uh, and again, this is not about, you know, University of Arizona is kind of a conceptual program. I think they see themselves in that way, like a research-based 
uh, sort of art making program that maybe probably if there's a meter between craft and content, it leans a little more on the side of content. But uh, that's not why I have equal emphasis of those two factors in the classes. I want these students to determine who they are, right? And we know that as kids, whatever program they go to, they may be encouraged uh, to work more in one way than the other. Uh, But really, at the end of the day, what I think we're trying to prepare them to do is to go out into the world and figure out who they are, uh, you know, what what is at the core of them versus what was at the core of the program they went through. And so uh, by giving kind of equal emphasis on craft and content or, uh, you know, technique and idea, maybe another way to frame it, uh, I think we help them sort of realize who is they are. You know, again, like most of these kids at this point are interested in art. Uh, they come to study art because they had exposure in high school uh, to painting or to photography or to sculpture, sort of traditional modes uh, of thinking. And we uh, want to acknowledge that that's what art is, uh, but we also want to say, and then there are these other things too. I don't believe in the burn them down, build them back up model that you so often hear described as what a foundations program should be, right? Like that uh, these kids come with presuppositions and you have to destroy all of that and start from scratch. I, I see it as a welcome gate. I see it as a little party. I see it as like, hey, you love art. We love art. Let's see what we can do. So by the time they're done with their first year, uh, they could have experienced uh, observational drawing, uh, sculpting, uh, photography. Uh, we have a 40 class called Experience where they do uh, performance video and sound. We've got a class called Amalgam that uh, allows them to kind of uh, think interdisciplinarily. Like they will do mixed media projects. Propaganda is kind of a you know more uh, digital art kind of class. And the body is like figure drawing. So lots of traditional skills uh, and lots of contemporary skills all kind of on equal ground. And so by the time they choose the six classes they're going to take, it's, uh, they get, they're going to have some staple skills, uh, but they're also going to have a say in it. And I think the DIY uh, aspect of that is a critical ingredient to me, that we're acknowledging that these students have come here to study art because they have a voice and that that uh, voice is a valid voice whether or not they, you know, are experienced artists or, or what have you, they have interests and we want to uh, tip the hat to them and say, Hey kid, uh, here's looking at you. You know, I, <laughs> I don't know what the sound like an old man. But, uh, <laughs> no, but, but I mean, this idea that you're treating them as human beings, right? That they come in with preferences and experiences and their own personal choices that they get to make. So are, are there any of the workshops or like the modules that they have to take or that they're required or is all of it sort of choose your own adventure approach? Um, it, it, there, there are three units that everybody has to take, three eight-week units, and that's mapping uh, space and surface. So they do have moderate exposure to the classic Bauhaus trifecta, right? They're getting uh, some uh, 3D experience, some 2D experience, and some drawing experience. And uh, the reason we kind of kept those as required component uh, was that we understand why that's in place in most schools in the United States, right? There is a really kind of effective tool set there that whether you're a photographer or a sculptor or a performance artist or a person that just drinks nacho cheese all day, I think that's a type of art. That sounds um, amazing, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, maybe I should rethink my own practice. That sounds pretty no, good. <laughs> it's not, I, I'm having... A second class now too. Uh, 
but uh, you know, whatever it is you're, you're doing, like those skill sets are uh, like, if you can draw, right, you can cheaply realize anything, right? Uh, if you, and now that doesn't mean they're going to be able to draw, but it gives them exposure to that as a possibility. So uh, those three are required and then they choose three. So it is, I said, it's DIY. It's maybe it's not truly DIY. Maybe half of it is DIY, but we want them to have some essential skill sets. And uh, then the others, we kind of acknowledge, like there are a lot of different ways to get the core. And I, I, that's why we call it first year experience rather than foundations is I I like to challenge that idea that a foundation is the same thing for everybody. Uh, I think there, you know, and we, we all know that just from being alive in the world, all of us have a different historically effective uh, consciousness, right? We come from uh, different uh, economic uh, strata. We come from uh, different uh, racial or, or religious uh, backgrounds. And all of those experiences are you know, part of uh, the ingredient list that we use when we move forward making our art. And so to think that there is one sort of universal training for a group of students where there, there is uh, diversity and there is, uh, you know, diversity of approach, diversity of background, of identity, like uh, these kids are different and that's why they came to art school. And I, you know, one of the things that I realized the, the longer I teach and the more that your kind of administrative duties grow is that. Uh, in some regard, it's impossible to separate yourself from being the man, right? And this is kind of the curse that no uh, no artist wants to be part of the institution. But but uh, when you are administering a program, there are some aspects of the job that come forward in that way, you know, and, and where you do have to kind of draw lines and you do have to make a call uh, and you do have to treat everyone equally. And uh, I think that we tried to set up a structure where... Uh, uh, you know, the, the, you have enough uh, structure, but you also have enough room to accommodate their voice. Because on the other hand, right, they like I talk about the DIY aspects, but I'm also talking about the careful kind of thought that went into sort of structuring the experience. What, what I don't I didn't want the program to be, on the other hand, was this open ended, chaotic, like anything goes, hey, let's just uh, come in and see what we feel today, because I. Uh, I, maybe, and this might be my own proclivity for organization uh, too, that I do feel like we can orchestrate uh, this for them to make it engaging, uh, to surprise them. They don't know yet uh, what materials exist. They don't know yet if they push themselves, what ty- kinds of ideas they can pull out of themselves. And so I think you do need a rigorous structure, but you also have to accommodate for their voice. So I'm trying not to be the man while also having to be the man, right? Like that's, uh, I think that's maybe the curse of the academic artist. Uh, you know, you we could let go of everything and be the just the rock star that stays in the studio all day and doesn't pay attention to his students. But on the other side of that, we're being paid uh, to lead these students. And I find that if we take that responsibility seriously, that you take uh, the kind of romantic energy uh, of the arts back into your studio with you. You know, if you're really kind of trying to work with your kids and lead them, uh, you want to be a leader, not a ruler, right? And and right. Uh, so go in there and share your enthusiasm and uh, do it authentically. And I think you're going to have a generation of artists that sense your enthusiasm and they sense that you care about art a lot and you care about them uh, and their education. And so... Sometimes, you know, as a foundations coordinator, you do find yourself, uh, as I said, making calls and drawing lines and 
cutting things off. And uh, some of that feels cold and cruel, but I also think it's essential to uh, the arts in the academy. I think it's always an awkward fit. I don't know. You know, like uh, I'm glad that arts exist in uh, universities, but uh, it is kind of a force fit in some regards. And in other ways, it allows things to happen that wouldn't ever happen for them uh, were they just making art in their mother's basement, uh, you know, for the rest of their lives. But Right, right, because, I mean, it gives them an opportunity to maybe be experienced with something or, or you know, get a taste of something that they didn't really know was art or that they didn't know that they could do this and that or that there could be some kind of hybrid moment of making or um, whatever. I mean, I think that's that's really important. Yeah, and, and I didn't, I also should uh, backtrack a little, kind of talking about this kind of leading them to see all of these new things. At the other uh, end of the spectrum, I, I should be clear that we also uh, want to respect and adore the kids that decide uh, that they want to stay where, you know, like if they came in as they knew they wanted to be a photographer and by the time they're a senior, they're still a photographer and they're an excellent photographer or a painter or a sculptor or printmaker or whatever. That's awesome also, right? But uh, right. I just, I, I hope that we uh, kind of have the doors and windows open enough that the kids don't feel insular, that they can kind of celebrate in the hybridity that uh, will no doubt uh, unfold in front of them if they have their eyes open in these classes. Sure. And I would imagine that once they've gone through surface and space and mapping, that they probably have a more clear understanding of what they're passionate about or what they are really skilled at, which is always a good thing for anybody to become more aware of. Right. Yeah, that and I I think so. We see kids change their majors all the time, you know, their intended majors, and uh, that works when uh, you keep the first year and first year experience. Uh, so one of the problems that we have uh, are transfer students uh, that come in, uh, yeah. maybe as uh, juniors or sophomores, and they they didn't take our first year classes, so they have to kind of backtrack to take some of them, uh, or seniors that somehow got signed out of the classes and they're coming circling back around to do them. I think it's really important if you have a foundations program that you can get the kids through it in that first year, because that's where it will hit all the pedagogical bases that, you know, it's supposed to hit. And I think it's at at a certain point, it it seems like busy work to make a a senior come back down and circle around to a class that is structured for the 100 level. Uh, So we we have some challenges that we're trying to, uh, having some seniors and juniors in there. Now, seniors and juniors that are non-majors, that's great. We love non-majors because, uh, you know, you get a dentist in or, you know, students studying to be a dentist in your class uh, or an engineer or a mathematician or a creative writer, like some real magic can happen there. And it doesn't matter if they're non-majors, if uh, they're taking this class as an elective. But I think maybe, maybe this is boring. Sorry. No, 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 Bill, because I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued because I was under the impression that only the folks that were art majors were going through the FYE situation. So you guys have sort of like a mixed bag? It is open. Uh, It is open to the university. We have a, and the problem is, uh, you know, art students classically, uh, and this this is probably a stereotype of art students, but it's, it holds true in a lot of cases, right? (laughs) The the art art students are the last kids to get their schedules done. And so uh, we had, because the the non-majors were filling up the classes. So now we have kind of a cutoff date where the seats are uh, fakely reserved. So they they kind of 
hold a bunch of the seats for the art majors until they actually schedule. And then at the end, they open it up to allow the non-majors to fill the seats. And uh, so it's kind of like a false uh, enrollment um, where they're just reserving seats so that our majors get through the classes. But now anybody at the university can take you know, any of these classes. And uh, while we still, uh, we still treat them the same, though, these are, in fact, little individual ramps that are meant to uh, be the beginning of a professional art career. So uh, it is taught in such a way that uh, we assume that the students come in with you know, anything from moderate to no uh, art experience. Uh, but, um, you know, and so I think that works for the non-major, but we still hold them to the standards of, you know, this is a, a professional art course. This is, uh, you know, what you would take at the beginning of a career that's uh, trying to train you to be a professional artist. So we're not lenient with the non-majors, but I think most of them uh, will end up, they'll come up to you at the end of the class and say, this was my favorite class. I couldn't wait to come to this class. And they the time too. They, uh, you know, the academic rigor of the engineering students and the mathematics students and uh, whoever else, I, I love having that in the classroom. And sometimes sure. it keeps the, the art kids on point too, because they see these other kids that aren't artists or don't have experience and uh, they're just putting in the time and they're getting the results. You know, I think that's a beautiful thing. Sure. Well, and, and when you got to the University of Arizona and presented this this model and talked about these things was it was it challenging to get everyone on board or to implement this with faculty that were currently there or maybe that weren't as experienced with thinking about foundations in that way that's a, a good question and and uh, I should maybe when I talked about it earlier it, it might have sounded like I uh, done a lot of the development at another university and then came here and threw the baby out with the bathwater and just dropped this fresh new model on them. But th it didn't really happen that way exactly. I, uh, when I had gotten here in 2007, or when I arrived at the University of Arizona, uh, the first thing I did was I set up uh, meetings with each of the different divisions. Uh, so we have photography, 2D, which is painting and drawing and uh, printmaking. We've got 3D XM, which is uh, sculpture and extended media art history and art and visual culture education. And all of those divisions have students that require them to take, uh, you know, foundations courses. And so I met with each of those groups and talked to them about what they thought was uh, working with the current uh, foundations program, uh, what they thought was missing from that, what they thought needed to go from that. And so, uh, you know, that was very early in the development. And then I, uh, from there, I went back to the drawing board. I took all that information and, folded it into what I saw to be the, the, what became the content of the program in the future. And the structure that I developed at Bowling Green uh, did kind of carry over. And they, they, have, uh, they have similar uh, eight-week classes, but they're kind of folded together in 16-week pairings. I'm not exactly sh uh, sure how that plays out in terms of grading and so forth. But we wanted to maintain the sort of autonomy and the ability to, for the students to sort of move through the individual courses or fail an individual course and uh, pick something up later. I'm not sure. You might want to edit that out. That was kind of a boring <laughs> exception. No, 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 no. Uh, but, but, but I mean, I, I think that the, the really important thing that you're pointing out is that you didn't just show up in this new position um, with this task, you know, of kind of um, creating or evaluating or re 
restructuring the, the model there that you didn't just show up and say, okay, guys, here's what we're doing, blah, blah, blah. But you, you know, listened and you um, met with folks and you talked about what's working, what's not working, what can we do? And there was that moment of just kind of observing, especially yeah. as like a new person within that program. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think it, everyone knew that they had a voice in the process early on. Uh, and what happened, because I met with the faculty maybe three times, uh, each group of faculty maybe three times during the development, I had gone for that initial sort of, hey, what are your thoughts session. And then as I kind of folded that into the content and worked that into the structure, the, the thematic workshop uh, module structure, I went and brought that to them and said, hey, what do you think about this? This is where I'm at right now. And as, as I moved through, I included the faculty all the way through, and they had a buy-in incentive in the program, uh, and they felt like they owned it. And by the time it went up for faculty vote, it was a unanimous vote, and, uh, you know, it, it worked. And, and, um, and I think that's the trick, right? Like, the, you know, I had done a talk at FATE maybe in 2000. 10 or so, uh, I don't remember, maybe it was 2011, but uh, about that kind of process of bringing this uh, through the faculty and building buy-in. And I think it was called, uh, they'll only drink the Kool-Aid if they're in on the recipe. And so, so I think, you know, it was, it's very difficult to implement something democratically in an academy, but uh, it's, it's a lot more work, but it's also work that uh, builds trust and buy-in. And I think it worked out pretty well you know it could it could have gone could have gone poorly and the other thing is that that was really to my advantage was that I uh, was a standalone person as a department and so I didn't inherit like a bunch of folks that kind of knew how it used to be and weren't willing to change or weren't willing to budge I think uh -huh. everyone just kind of trusted me uh, because I was outside of their department and they were like yeah let, let him do whatever he wants to do and and I did, uh, I tried to make it reciprocal and yeah, but it could have, I think if I would have been and there would have been a standing foundations faculty, it probably would have been a lot of, uh, a lot of different types of hurdles. Like as it stands now, all of our foundations program courses, you know, our first year experience courses are taught by, uh, graduates with the exception of myself and, and I have a colleague now and that's a new thing, but at the time it was just, uh, me and the graduates, which, I actually think is a really amazing uh, thing. You know, a lot of times, like I've heard it said that you can't have a foundations program, uh, program that's run, uh, you know, or taught exclusively by graduate students. And I think it's really quite the opposite. I, I think that our program is known and robust uh, because of that energy. You have to be willing to lead those graduates and uh, work with them very closely. Uh, but I think they all buy into the program too, right? They, uh, they kind of believe in it, and that is uh, what really allows it to be amazing because we've tapped into the energy and the vigor of these teachers uh, that on one point are our most vulnerable teachers, but on the other point are uh, also in art in a very exciting way for the first time in their lives. Like the, that kind of professional uh, crest has uh, surfaced, and they've risen above what they've learned in undergrad and they're in their studios, like struggling in the most beautiful way. And they bring that in and that energy makes our program vibrant. Oh, absolutely. And I think just the notion that for anybody that's participating in, in, in that program, there needs to be like a clear understanding that their voice is important. 
and that um, and that it's not just you know you or the coordinator of any program saying, well, this is what we're going to do, and this is how it's going to be, and okay, one, two, three, here it is, you know. But but that it, it takes a process of just like listening and sort of understanding what's what's needed, you know, rather than just coming in hot and being like, here we go, this is what you guys need. I think that can usually be pretty, pretty awful. <laughs> no, I, I totally agree. Uh, and and I'm going, going back to some of what I'd said about structuring an undergraduate program, uh, I think it, it applies in terms of teaching our teachers how to teach also, right? You have to have enough structure that these new vulnerable faculty have something to rely on, but you also have to have it structured uh, to accommodate for their voices and to allow them uh, you know, uh, what I don't want to do is give everyone assignments and say, teach these assignments, right? They ha- they do have required project standards that they have to uh, follow, but they can develop projects that are really catered to their own interests. And we, we want to work with them, too. We're not just like kind of leaving them on their own and saying, do what you want. Because with these uh, individual eight-week uh, courses, there are eight different ones. And so they really do have to stick to the curricular content in terms of what uh, should be covered in the course, but they can approach that however they uh, see fit. Uh, so there needs to be flexibility, but there also needs to be enough of a skeleton that uh, the program is uh, in place and required for a reason, that it's not just an open-ended uh, do-what-you-want experience in each of those courses. I think the students would, the undergrads would suffer then. Right. And it's kind of human nature that if somebody is not being authentic or not really excited about something, if they're just kind of bullshitting through it. I mean, I can remember having professors like that at various times in my career as a student and just feeling like, oh, this is so lame. You know, like they're not excited about this. I'm not excited about this. Why are we just like wanking through all of this stuff, you know? And and why is this happening? You know, like I'm trapped, they're trapped. It's just sort of this awful thing, but you can sort of smell that, right? And yeah. and and I think that that happens with um, grad students, it happens with undergrad students. And I, I think it's, it's just really exciting that, that you're giving them an opportunity to feel things out and become who they are as instructors, you know, or TAs or, or whatever. Um, I think that's, that's really great. Well, I, I hope so. I, th- I think that's what happens in the best cases. Uh, you know, there are, there are times where, you know, again, being, being part of, uh, the institution, uh, where you do, uh, maybe, maybe you even overstep, you know, and you try to draw lines and you try to, keep uh, things organized and moving forward in a way that's uh, going to impact the undergraduates in a great way. Uh, and so, uh, you know, you, you want, to, again, I, I always think about the difference between leading and ruling and you want it to be open enough, but I think there are times when it works very well. Uh, we feather our students into teaching through a course that we call the first year experience practicum. So they will, during the first eight weeks, they will shadow me teaching a section, and then during the second eight weeks, uh, we offer an identical section that the graduate teachers are uh, offering, uh, and I'm in the room with them. And so it's kind of teaching under observation, but it feathers them into the role of being uh, an educator and a mentor. Uh, so it's not just like, I don't like to do the sink or swim, like, here's yeah. this student, let's throw them in this class that, uh, you know, I think it gives them buy-in into the philosophy of the program for the most part, you know, and, oh, you know, it, it seems to work. 
Well, absolutely. Yeah. And that sort of sink or swim. I mean, that's sort of like what you were talking about, that you don't want to have a foundations program that's just sort of let's burn them down so we can build them back up. And this sort of shameful, like extravaganza of some sort, you know, right. um, it just it just seems like it's it's not maybe the most human way to go about it. So I, I completely agree. Well, I think our, our time is kind of wrapping up, unfortunately, and I guess I, I just um, wanted to see if there was um, anything um, in terms of, I mean, you being an artist and someone that's very familiar with time-based work, and you sort of talked about the ways in which that can be challenging for like an audience, and then maybe even, you know, for, for some of those that are listening, it might even be challenging for them to think about that being within like a first-year experience. Sure. Um, and so, you know, for, for those artists and educators that that's really not their jam or they're really not familiar with that um, as a maker. I mean, do you have any advice or thoughts on just how to introduce students or um, or maybe why that's important having that within like that first year experience? You know, first of all, I would never say that uh, as a blanket statement that every school should have it. I think, you know, it. I, I do understand, uh, you know, what I see as the benefits of it. Uh, and I'll talk to that in a moment, but I do think it's important that there are lots of different types of art schools out there, and some are going to be more classic, uh, and some are going to try to embrace uh, the kind of edge of contemporary art, and there are going to be schools everywhere in between, and I think all of them are right. You know, there's not, uh, that's a beautiful thing about art, right? There's not necessarily going to be a rule book, but, you know, in my mind, folding those practices in uh, to that first year again, is about kind of showing the student that this is a viable route, this is a, a possibility. And I really think, you know, I was talking about the first year experience as being this kind of uh, welcome gate. You know, I think it's important to say, you know, that everybody is welcome, whether or not they find themselves to be in those traditional modes. And, you know, kids may find themselves in the wrong program, right? There might be someone that would be better suited to, uh, you know, a model that was a little more classic. And I think, but for the most part, I don't think the students that are coming in as undergraduates know really what type of artists they are yet. Uh, they have ideas and they have some presuppositions, but that's why I think it's important because there are very likely some students in an incoming freshman class that will be a video artist or will be a performance artist or work with sound in some regard. Uh, you know, or like we have an interdisciplinary class and we have a photo class and photo and interdisciplinary skills are often not folded into the foundation's experience because they're not seen as kind of core, but I, I, you know, or at least the, the perception is that, but I think they are, I think, uh, even painters today, you know, uh, like with digital photography, I think, uh, almost everybody is, is taking snapshots out there in the world and folding that back into their practice in some regard, whether they're, you know, painters or sculptors or what have you, it's just so easy to have those skills that are disposed. I'm not sure where I'm headed with that. I kind of took a long way around that question. Sorry. No, 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 no. I mean, I, I, I think you were on, on, on target and, and I really appreciate, and, and I don't think it's really talked about enough. It's just that, um, there's really no right or wrong way to do this and that, that there is real value in having this like variety of types of first year experiences or foundation programs. Um, because I think there's such a tendency to like compare, you know, or say, well, this program's doing this right, or this program's doing this wrong or, or have some kind of assessing vibe attached right. to all of it, right. you know, whereas everybody that's at each institution has a very particular approach and needs based on the kind of students that they're actually catering to. I agree. I, yeah, I don't think there's a, again, as long as the undergrad, uh, and I'm talking about the whole four-year undergrad 
degree here, not just the first year. But as long as that undergraduate comes out with, uh, again, going back to work ethic and discipline, I think you can't you can't do them wrong. They're going to figure out who they are eventually. But I really see that as the goal of that program. Like, A, you should, yes, of course, you should have a portfolio, you know, that you leave with. Uh, but B, you know, you, you want to have the ability to ask yourself questions and sustain your practice after you are no longer in a class. So whatever, there are a lot of different ways to do that. I like the way we do it, and I think it really gels with me and, you know, is developed in tandem with the needs of this program in particular. But it's not something you can just pick up and put in another school either. You know, like I really think you need to cater and customize that uh, foundation's experience to the division, uh, individual school. And for me, the video and performance and sound uh, in, in the foundation's level is important uh, at a personal level, too, as a teacher, because it's what I'm enthusiastic about. And I think if you have uh, just this requirement that that's part of a foundations program in a program where you don't have a faculty member that addresses those forms, you're never going to have the enthusiasm for it. And it may not work, right? It might be like, oh, there, here are these things. And I remember my art history teacher, who was amazing. He was an amazing personality, like when I was an undergrad, the guy that taught us survey one and two. When we went through Egypt, it was amazing, like because he was an Egyptologist. That was his specialty. But when we got up to contemporary art, he was kind of uh, almost dismissive uh, of it in the way that he described it. And so I took that attitude on until much later. I took, uh, you know, an art since 1945 class where I had a teacher that was very enthusiastic about it. And so you can have the same information in front of you, but people's attitudes do uh, kind of shift and uh, make you adjust your your viewpoints or your trust, your ability to trust. Uh, and so I was really glad that I did have to take that other course because maybe I would have been, uh, you know, doing something entirely different instead of, uh, you know, and, I, and this, this other teacher, the teacher I had for art since 1945, there were several times when he would be talking about the work, this contemporary work, and I would just be in tears in the back of the classroom because he had uh, kind of brought it to light and made it so critical and so important and uh, really kind of showed me what it could do. And I think that's amazing that at different times in our life, we may or may not be ready for receiving, you know, uh, some type of information or way to approach the world or what have you. Yeah, well, and I think it just sort of comes back to, to what you said sort of earlier on about just this um, intense responsibility and like privilege it is for us to get to engage with these human beings that are that are thinking about things perhaps for the first time or that have their own preferences that they're sort of bringing in and that we get to sort of be a part of that journey is, is really exciting. Totally. Well, Gary, thank you so much for your time and just your willingness and your enthusiasm. Um, I, I really, really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for your thoughtful questions and for uh, including me in this. This uh, I, I was really fun, so thanks. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Positive Space. If you're interested in being part of FATE's ongoing conversation about art foundations, visit the FATE website at foundationsart.org. Don't forget the dash between foundations and art. This episode's interview was conducted by Valerie Powell and was engineered and edited by Raymond Gaddy. Our theme music was provided by Lee Rosevere. If you like what you hear on Positive Space, be sure to give us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is you find your podcast. Better yet, send us some audio. You can call Positive Space at 904-990-FATE. That's 904-990-3283. You may find your voice on the next episode of Positive Space.